All right, Adam, just let it go. It's not that big of a deal. It definitely wasn't intentional. He's really stressed right now, and he probably didn't mean it that way. Or did he? What if it was intentional? Yeah, it was definitely intentional. He did it on purpose. You shouldn't let that go. It is a big deal. You, you should, should be mad. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We have an enemy. We have an enemy who wants to attack us. How? Scripture says in John chapter four that his, his tactic, his strategy is to lie to us. He is the father of lies. Lying is his native language. When he speaks, he speaks lies. Scripture says that he attacks us through his lies and he realizes that if he can attack our mind, he can win the war for our life. If he can begin to continue to play the mind games that he tells us something to convince us things that are not true, really are true, he can begin to win the battle for our minds. Paul, one of the primary writers of the New Testament, says it this way in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons have divine power to demolish what? Demolish strongholds, demolish fortresses, demolish captive places, demolish these, these things that we build in our minds that have protection and safety around the lies that aren't really there. And it says, we are going to do with these strongholds, we will demolish them in verse 5. We will demolish these arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. How are we going to do that? We're going to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We're going to define the strongholds. We're going to, to find these places in our mind where the lies have become so prevalent that we are listening to them and believing them as if they are true. And we're going to begin to name them. Remember, we said last week, if you were here, you cannot defeat that which you do not define. You cannot overcome something you have not named. And so for this series, Mind Games, we are taking time and we are talking about the strongholds that the enemy has in our mind, the lies that he tells us. Last week, if you were here for the first week, we talked about the lie of shame. We said that there's these times where the enemy whispers into our head, yes, you should be ashamed. What you did was not something you did, but it's who you are. You should be ashamed of that. You are a bad person. And this week, as we continue with week number two, we're going to talk about the lie that says you should be mad. Yes, what they did was wrong. You deserve to be mad. Yeah, yeah, they, they did. it was in purpose. It was intentional. They were really trying to hurt you. You should be mad. Don't let it go. Don't forgive it. Don't just brush it under the rug. No, no, no. You should be mad. It's been said by Ed Stetzer, a, a famous author, that we live in an age of outrage. I love that, that saying, right? The age of outrage. I don't know about you, but that seems to kind of describe our culture pretty well. It seems like every time I turn on the news... It seems like the news story's purpose and intent is to get me frustrated and angry or mad about something. It seems that every, every time I turn on talk radio, the things they are talking about, the purpose and the intent is to get me frustrated and angry and irritated about something. It seems that all of the, the clickbait, the ads that appear on social media, their purpose is to divide, to, to sift us into camps, to get us angry at the other camp, to cause us to have frustration and irritation with people in the world around us. Why? Because our culture knows that when we are angry, we act, we do, 
we seek something, we initiate, we, we continually try to fix or solve or move forward. Anger causes us to do something. We don't hold it in. And if you think about it, each and every day, no matter where we are in the spectrum of our walk with Jesus, whether we've been walking with him for all of our life or whether we are in church for the very first time today, there is someone or something every day that can cause us to get angry. There is always something that can cause us to get frustrated and irritated and angry. I think it's probably safe to say that in a room this size, all of us joining online and down at our Fredericksburg campus, that there is multiple of us, numerous ones of us, that struggle with anger, myself included. So what is anger? Anger is one of those things where it's easier to describe than it is to define, right? We know anger when we see it. <laughs> we're at the airport and we see somebody and we're like, that person is angry, right? We know anger when we feel it. We can feel the blood in us. We can feel the stress. We can feel the tension. We know when we're starting to get angry, we feel it. But defining it is a little bit harder. And so this morning, I want to give us just a very simple, basic definition that I hope helps us get there. And it is this. Anger is an active response to a perceived evil or injustice, and let's leave this here for just a second. Let's camp on two words. Anger is an active response. Anger is active. Anger is not something that is done to us. Anger is something that we do. We exercise anger. We are provoked to anger. Therefore, we are active in that. It's something that we do. Now, some of us, we hide it and we conceal it. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But regardless, anger is always an active response on our part. We are in control of it. Nobody else is to blame. Nobody else is responsible for our anger. The second thing is it is a response to a perceived evil or injustice. Here's the thing about anger. It's very subjective. The thing that irritates me may make you smile. It's my perception that matters. It's hard to define because each and every one of us would say something different frustrates us. Something different irritates us. Something different angers us. And so therefore, it is all about us, 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 our perception, our feelings, our thoughts. Anger is an active response to a perceived evil or injustice. Now, let's go a little deeper with that this morning. In scripture, we see three main types of anger. Three main types. And that first type is we see divine anger. We see divine anger. When we see divine anger in scripture, this is the kind of anger that we see come from God, a holy, just, and loving God. Divine anger is not something that humans experience. Divine anger is simply that. It belongs to the divine, to the God. And he, when he expresses anger in the, in the New Testament and in the Old, a lot of times it expresses his wrath or his judgment. Now, here's a couple of important things. Anger for God is not something that he is, it's something that he does. Scripture tells us that God is always provoked to anger. This matters for a reason because sometimes we think that God is anger, just like he is love, just like he is patient, just like he is kind. And so therefore, when we get angry, we are exercising the image of God in us. No, no, no. God is not anger, he is provoked to anger. And his anger is always in love. You see, God is both loving and just. God loves people beyond anything we could ever imagine or dream, but at the same time, he is just and holy and righteous and therefore holds people to accountable for their sins and their actions. And so in scripture, when God gets angry, when his wrath comes, it is usually always pointed towards sin and evil nations and evil people and the way they are disrupting, or disrupting his name and his fame. The second kind of anger that we see in scripture is what we would call um, righteous human anger. This closely mirrors divine anger, but it's in the human form. 
This is when you and I, when we see an injustice or an evil that causes us something in us to just stir and rise up. An author described this a lot of times, kind of like the Popeye moments, if you remember those old cartoons with Popeye, where Popeye sees something and he's really weak and pathetic and he sees something and he just kind of says, I can't stand this anymore. And he takes his spinach and he kind of gets swole up and he goes out and fights. Popeye sees an injustice, he sees an experience, he sees something happen and it causes his anger to stir and act. We see this in scripture very, very rarely. We see this with David and Goliath. Maybe you're familiar with the story. David was a a small shepherd boy and his task was to take armor to the front where the enemy was fighting, the Philistines and God's army, the Israelites. And when he gets there, there's this giant by the name of Goliath and David overhears Goliath saying things. What is he saying? He overhears Goliath mocking the people of God. He overhears him mocking God's name, making fun of them, you know, casting doubt upon them. And so David hears this and something inside of young David, the shepherd boy stirs where David says, this is not right. We cannot talk about God like this. We can't do this. And it causes him to step up and have action. He has righteous human anger in this moment. Now, it is important to realize that this kind of anger in scripture is incredibly, incredibly rare. In fact, it's so rare that I would say that the majority of the anger that we see in scripture is a different kind. This is the kind of anger, though, we experience this in moments where maybe we hear of malnourished children in a foreign country and the mistreatment that they're having, and something in our heart says, that's not right, that's not what God wants. This kind of anger is concerned with God's image, with God's name, with God's fame, with God's reputation, and how a world can disrespect a holy and loving God, and it's righteous. But the third type of anger, the one that is the most common in scripture, would be sinful human anger, sinful human anger. In fact, most scholars would say when they look at anger in the Old and New Testament, the majority of it deals with God, his wrath, his divine anger, but the part that deals with human anger, it's anywhere between 90 and 93% of all anger verses deal with sinful human anger because it is most prevalent in our hearts. So what's the difference? How can you tell the difference when you have righteous human anger or sinful human anger? While this one is concerned with God's name and God's fame and God's image, this one, on the other hand, is concerned with our name and our fame, and our image. While righteous human anger, we feel like they can't talk about God like that. They can't do that to a loving and just God. The other one says, they can't do that to me. They can't talk about me like that. That is about me, me, me. Now, just so we're on one final page here, this final category, sinful human anger, when we hear this, our initial instinct is to think of one type of person. But anger comes in many different forms. In fact, uh, one of the authors I read, he called it, you have revealing anger or concealing anger. Another author, I said, some of us are spewers and some of us are stewers, right? Like we keep it inside or we spew it. One author I read, he talked about, he described anger as vomit. And so I apologize for how gross this is going to get here. But he said, some of us, when we get angry, when we have that vomit, we are projectile vomiting on everyone around us. But the rest of us, we are vomiting over and over in our mouth and just swallowing it right back down. But here's the point. Whichever one we are, it's still vomit. Both are still dangerous. So when we hear sinful human anger, our instinct is to think of the person who is the the revealer, the person who's spewing it everywhere, the person who's yelling, the person who's screaming, the person who's slamming doors, the person who is, is kind of just being violent to the extreme almost, sometimes physical violence. And yes, that is wrong and that is sinful, but that doesn't put us off the hook if we are the quiet kind. 
Because the person who's the concealer, who instead of spewing it out on everyone, swallows it down and walks around with a low-level irritation and bitterness and anger on the inside and withdraws and isolates and gives the cold shoulder, it can be just as bad and wrong. For years, if you would have asked me, Adam, do you struggle with anger? I would have said, no, absolutely not. I can't remember the last time I yelled, the last time I, I screamed, the last time I did anything that was kind of above a whisper sometimes, right? That's just not my personality. But over the last couple months and last couple years, as I've been reflecting on that, I think I realized that I am actually a little bit of an angry person. I just conceal it. Something happens to me and I go home and instead of yelling at someone, I just have this low-level irritation for the rest of the evening with my family where all the little things they do that normally would just pass me by, I poke at, I pick on, I, I bring to light. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Um, our family has this Friday night tradition. Um, it's family movie night. Pretty self-explanatory, right? We, on a Friday night, we watch a movie together as a family. This should be and could be the most magical, blissful evening of the week. But it is not. It is my least favorite night of the entire week. Let me walk you through what family movie night looks like at the Sour household. We pick the kids up. I don't work on Fridays, so we pick the kids up from school, and immediately, even though we're not watching the movie for four more hours, they are already asking hundreds of questions on the drive. What are we watching tonight? What movie are we watching? What movie are we watching tonight, Dad? Are we going to watch a movie tonight? Well, we need to eat dinner first. You got to do homework. Well, what movie are we going to watch? What movie are we going to watch? And then we get home, and it's still, what movie? Just nobody talk about the movie. We're done. Stop talking about the movie. We will deal with it later when it comes movie time. We need to eat first. So then it comes time, and you can just feel this, this low-level tension in the family leading up to movie night. Then we get to the movie, and it's finally time. Everyone gets on the couch. And what should be a blissful, kind of perfect evening, we sit down on the couch, and when it comes time to pick the movie, and I have the remote, and I'm scrolling through trying to find the movie, and every single movie, never fails, every single movie. Can we watch that trailer? Can we watch that trailer? Let's watch that trailer. What movie are we going to? Let's watch that trailer. Why would we watch that trailer? It's, it's Aliens vs. Predators. We're not watching this. You're eight years old. We're not going to watch this. Well, but I want to watch the trailer, Dad. No, we're not watching this trailer. That's a rated R movie. We're not going to watch this trailer. We're not, what movie are we going to watch? And just, just everyone stop talking. <laughs> Mom and dad are going to decide what movie we're going to watch, and we are going to decide this for the family. Just be quiet. So finally, we've, we figure out what movie we're going to watch. We've got it ready to go, and they say, well, let's watch the trailer first. We're about to watch the movie. Why would we watch the trailer? We just want to see what's going to happen. But that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a child's movie. Everything funny is in the trailer. It's clickbait. They want you to see it. There's nothing. We can watch the trailer and move on to the next one and be done. We don't have to do this. Plus, you watched that trailer last week after the movie because you were looking forward to it with this week. We've already seen it four times. Why would we watch the trailer? We just want to watch the trailer, Dad. Okay, we'll watch the trailer. Finally, everyone's ready. It's movie time. Okay, everyone, we're going to get started. Everyone go to the bathroom one more time. Get a drink, blah, blah, blah. So I head to the kitchen. I get a drink. I come back. There is a child in my seat. We have had the same couch since they were born. I have sat in the same spot since they were born, but now they're in my seat. What are you doing in my seat? I just wanted to sit here. No, you never sat there. That's my seat. It's mine. Like, what, what are you doing? So finally, after I wrestle the seat thief to the next thing, and I sit back down, I reach over, I got my drink, I've got my footstool, everyone's ready to go. I go over to grab the remote, and lo and behold, it is no longer where I left it. And my child is over there going, can I push play? No, you, you don't touch a man's remote, right? Like, 
Like, if I would have touched my dad's remote, I wouldn't be alive today. I would have been camping outside all weekend. Like, you, men, you know this. You don't touch the remote, especially as a child. And so it's like, give me the remote. I will do this, not you. And then we get, we're ready, right? We're all setting down. Everyone's got their snacks or drinks. We go to push play. Oh, wait, stop. I didn't get a blanket. What, do you, what have you been doing for 45 minutes while we try to pick a movie? Why didn't you get the blanket? By the time the movie starts, I don't even want to know these kids anymore. Like, I'm done. I should have left them in Arkansas and moved here with my wife and not even thought about this. Like, so frustrating, so angry. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? Is it someone constantly talking over you and interrupting you? What makes you angry? Is it being cut off in traffic, which is a very sensitive subject around here, right? Is it people with different political views than you that no matter how much you seem disinterested, they feel like they have to share them with you over and over and over again? Is it incompetence from a coworker in the office or cubicle next to you? Is it people who post news stories that they know are not real, but they post them on social media just to get a stir? What makes you angry? Anger is everywhere in our culture. Spouses are angry at each other. Employees are angry at their bosses. Teenagers are angry at their parents. Spend time in an airport after bad weather and everybody's angry at everybody, right? Students are angry at teachers for the grades they got. Parents are angry at their adult kids who don't visit more often and they wish they would. A three-year-old is angry that her mother took away her favorite toy. For all I know, you are angry with me because I'm talking about your anger right now. Everyone has anger. Regardless of the situation, regardless of the circumstance, there's this consistent mind game happening in our heads where the enemy is whispering that we are better than those other people. You would never do that. You are better than them. You would never make that mistake. You would never do that to that person. Therefore, you should be mad. They wronged you. They hurt you. You deserve to be mad. What makes you angry? Is it the person in traffic, your kids, your spouse, your neighbor? The list could go on and on and on. What makes you angry? Or maybe let's ask this question differently. What is it that really makes you angry? Right, like think of an iceberg. There's the, the top of the iceberg you see above the water, but there's so much other stuff down below the surface, the roots, the deep part. So what is it that really, really makes you angry? You wanna know what it is? What makes you angry is not the person in traffic. It's not your spouse. It's not your boss. It's not your coworkers. It's not what you see on social media. What really, really, really makes you angry is that you wanted something and didn't get it. I just wanted to pick the movie. I just wanted my seat. I just wanted to hold the remote that I paid for, that I own in my house with my TV and my snacks. I want what I want. And when I don't get what I want, I get mad. I wanted blank and blank didn't happen, so now I'm frustrated. I wanted blank and blank didn't happen, so now I'm irritated. You can use the word frustrated, irritated, anger, mad, whatever you want. We know we're all talking about the same thing. We're just making it sound less harsh, right? You wanted something, and that something didn't happen, and therefore you are mad. And it's in these moments that the enemy begins to whisper, yeah, you deserved that. You should be mad. 
you should be upset. Proverbs 14, 17 says this, a quick-tempered person does what? Does foolish things. We've all seen the videos, right? Where a, a, a professional coach or a college coach or even a little league coach gets angry about a call and all of a sudden he's yelling at the umpire, yelling at the ref, and he's throwing chairs or kicking hats or breaking baseball bats. Or you see the people in golf world where they get so mad at something, they throw their entire golf bag into the lake and then they're left there like, what do I do now? We've all seen those people, like the, the videos where a teenager is playing a video game and they're so into it and then they lose and they just rage quit and throw their controller or break their parents' TV or hit it with a brick or do something crazy. We've all seen these situations, right? We've all seen what happens when a quick-tempered person does foolish things. But we've all done it as well. We've all said things to people close to us that immediately we wish we could take back. We've all sent that email that we wish we could unsend. We've all sent that text message and then realized later that we wish Apple would have a new feature that would make it where you could call those back. We've all seen a post on social media only to go back and delete it later because we did it in anger and it was foolish. A quick-tempered person does foolish things. Anger leads to foolishness. There's this story in the Old Testament about David before he was king. It's a fascinating story to me. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And for those of you that aren't aware, David was the future king of Israel, the, the Old Testament people of God. And so David has this moment where he is running from Saul, the current king, and Saul is trying to kill him, but David knows that God has called him to something, therefore he's running and he's fleeing. And he finds himself in the land, the field, of a guy by the name of Nabal. Nabal was an incredibly wealthy guy. He had lots of land and he had shepherds who would take care of the sheep and the flocks. And so David and his men are camped on his land hiding from Saul. And while they are there, David does something incredibly nice. He helps protect the shepherds of Nabal. He makes sure they're safe. He makes sure they're taken care of. And also while he's camping out on Nabal's land, he makes to go above and beyond not to steal any of Nabal's food. He makes sure that he respects his space and his property and the place. Well, one day David's soldiers see that Nabal is throwing a big party, a big feast. And they come back and tell David, hey, Nabal, he's got this huge thing going on. There's lots of meat. There's lots of stuff. We should go and be a part of this party. And so David tells his men, he says, I'm going to send some of you. I'm going to send you down to Nabal. And you're going to ask him. You're going to beg him. You're going to plead with him to give us some food. Now, he says, when you go, I want you to be incredibly kind, incredibly generous, incredibly thoughtful. I want you to go above and beyond. Say pretty please, not just please. I want you to make sure that when you talk to Nabal, you are sure that you are doing it in a kind way. So David's soldiers go down to Nabal in the middle of this feast, in the middle of this party with all these people. And they say, hey, and they begin to kind of flatter him and talk to him. And they say, we would love to have some food for David. And Nabal, in this moment, in front of everyone who is gathered there, this huge feast, this huge party, He's like, David? David who? What are you talking about, David? Why, why would I give food to a nobody like David? Just publicly insults him in front of everyone. And so the soldiers come back to David and they say, David, you're never gonna guess what happened. We didn't get any food, but not only that, he insulted you as if you were a nobody in front of all of the guests there. Listen to David's response, 1 Samuel 25, 13. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. David says to his men, he says, guys, he insulted me? Get your swords. Like, grab your swords right now. 
And he says, a couple of verses later, he says, we're going to march down to Nabal. We're going to go to this party. We're going to go to this feast. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to take our swords, all 400 of us, all 200. We're going to march down there and we're going to kill every single man who is down there because I am David and you do not insult me. Grab your swords, boys. We're going. Really? The dude insulted you, David, and your next step is to commit mass murder by grabbing your sword and marching down there. And can I just say with all the love and pastoral heart that I have this morning, there are some of you and you need to put your sword away. Somebody in your family hurt you. Somebody in your work hurt you. Somebody in your environment hurt you. And you have drawn your sword and you have said, they have insulted my honor. And you're ready to attack and fight and defend your name and your pride so much that you're going to do something foolish. Put the sword away. Abigail, Nabal's wife, finds David during this march as he's marching down to, to do this foolish thing as a quick-tempered man. And when he finds her, when she finds him, she says, David, David, whoa, whoa. And she brings him food without telling Nabal. And she says, David, before you do this, you are about to do something that will put a stain on your kingship forever. Church, Put your sword away. There are some of you, you need to stop listening to the lie before you lose your spouse. You need to stop listening to the lie before you lose your kids. You need to stop listening to the lie before you lose your roommate and you're alone all by yourself. Put the sword away. Stop believing that you should be mad. Put the sword away. Ephesians 4.31 says this. It says to get rid of what? Get rid of all bitterness. Get rid of all rage. Get rid of all anger, all brawling, all slander, along with every form of malice. Scripture tells us not to just stuff it inside and deal with it, not to vent it, not to spew it. It says to get rid of it. Why? Because it hurts you. A quick-tempered person does foolish things. What makes you angry? So how do we get rid of it? How do we stop the lie and overcome our anger? I've got just a couple practical things for us this morning. But what I do want to tell you is what I'm not going to do is tell you things that you can go find on the internet. I'm not going to tell you that when you start to get angry, go in your room and count to a thousand or take a walk with a dog and cuddle it or something like that. Right? Those are all things that all have value. You can read books on those. You can talk to psychologists about those. Uh, you probably know those better than I do. What I want to do, though, is I want to talk about what's below the iceberg. How do we overcome the lie that you should be mad? Let's talk about below the iceberg. And the first thing is this, if you're taking notes, we're going to expect people to be people. We're going to expect people to be people. Listen, I don't wanna be the person to break the bad news to you, but a couple thousand years ago, there was this place called the Garden of Eden and sin entered. And the moment that sin entered, scripture tells us that all of creation, human beings included, are under a curse of sin and rebellion in a state of fallenness. In fact, Romans 8 tells us this, that the curse of sin is so prevalent in our society that all of creation groans for that future day when things will be made right because sin is everywhere. We are all broken. We are all fallen. 
we are all stained. If we were all once made in the image of God, that image is now cracked and fractured in so many pieces that it is very, very rare that we even see the goodness of God in us apart from Jesus in us. We live in a broken world. Therefore, people will do broken things. People will do sinful things. We need to expect people to be people. Now, what I'm not saying is walk around expecting the worst than everyone with your head down as if everyone's going to let you down and you can never trust anyone. That is totally defeatist mindset and that is another lie that the enemy will give you. I'm not saying you walk around and be like, well, you know what, I guess I'm gonna go home but my wife will probably yell at me, my kids will probably do this, oh, but whatever, you know, that's just the way it is. People are people. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is expect people to be people, know that they're going to be fallen, know they're going to be broken and because of that, we're going to assume they are doing the best they can in a broken world. They're doing the best they can. This means that instead of saying, I can't believe he did blank, I can't believe she did that. No, 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 no. Why can't you believe it? They're fallen, broken people living in a sinful world who are doing the best. They're going to let you down. So we replace the lie. Instead of saying, I can't believe blank, we say, no, 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 no. I bet they're doing their best in a world that doesn't look like Jesus. And I'm going to trust that it was not intentional. And I'm not going to believe the lie that I should be mad. We're going to expect people to be people. And two, we're going to replace the lie that we should be mad. I don't know if you noticed this last week, we talked about replacing the lie. Spoiler alert, we're going to do this every week. We're going to replace the lie that we should be mad. When the voice in your head whispers, see, he did that on purpose, you should be mad. No, 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 we learn to recognize that that voice is a lie and we replace it. You replace it with a thought. Remember, the way we fight this is we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. What we are going to do is when those lies come into our head that tells us you should be mad, they did it on purpose, you deserve this. No, 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 I'm gonna take that thought captive and instead of believing that, I'm gonna flip it upside down. I'm gonna replace it with what Jesus says. I'm going to make it obedient to his nature and his character. Some examples. When the voice whispers, I can't believe she's running late. She knows I hate being late. You should be mad. No. You take it captive and you replace it. And instead you say, I don't like being late, but God's word says love is patient. And in this moment, I will show love and be patient. You replace the lie. When the voice whispers, how dare he talk to you like that? You deserve more respect than that. You should be mad. No, 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 no. You replace it. You say, I will not let my pride rise up in this moment, Jesus, because I remember that when you were mocked and when you were scorned, you didn't stand up. Instead, you took it like a man. Jesus, maybe there's something in truth they are saying here, and I will squelch my pride and listen. When the voice whispers, why can't the kids just figure it out and leave me alone? They know I'm trying to watch the game. They're doing it on purpose. You should be mad. No. You replace that lie with, Lord, being a parent is the highest calling you have called me to. And it is not easy and it is hard. But these are teachable moments where I am training and raising a future kingdom maker. Therefore, I will not be mad. I will lean in and parent. You replace the lie. What does this look like for me? Just kind of a personal insight into my life. Like I said, I'm not a, a vomiter of my anger. I conceal it, I hold it in. I just get irritated with my family and people in the office. Um, so for me, I've started learning to recognize that when I start to feel 
anger, like when I start to feel frustration, and we all know what it feels like, we can feel it in ourselves. When I start to feel that, I reflect back on James 3.16, and James 3.16 says this, it says, where there is envy and selfish ambition, disorder reigns. And I begin to recognize that that feeling I am feeling that feels like anger is really my soul in disorder. Why? Because there's envy and selfishness in me. And so I pause and I remember Jesus, Philippians 2, who gave up his life, humbled it even to the point of death on the cross. He laid down his life in an act of humility and did not count his worth, his selfishness. He passed it aside. And I remember that and I replaced the lie. How do we conquer our anger? We expect people to be people. We're gonna replace the lie. And third, we're going to stop carrying our anger with us. We're going to stop carrying our anger with us. I don't know about you, but when I start to get frustrated and angry, it just snowballs. Like if I have a bad day, when I go home, like I don't even need to be angry at my kids, but I start getting angry at them. I'm finding, I'm like, you guys didn't clean this, you didn't do this, you didn't clean your room, go clean your room. I'm just, I'm just, it's just snowballing, I can feel it in my body. Why, because undealt with anger is not good. I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but there are times when somebody says something to me and it hurts my pride and it makes me feel angry that all I do is think about it for the next week. I'm like, ooh, next time I'm gonna say that. I'm like chasing them around in my mind, right? Like, I'm gonna say this, yeah. I'm gonna send them a private message. No, no, I'm, uh, I'm gonna get angry with them. I, oh yeah, if this ever happens again, this is my response. I'm so ready for them, right? Because that undealt anger lingers. The Apostle Paul knew this in Ephesians 4. Look at that. He says, be angry and do not sin, right? The idea here is that you can have righteous anger. You can be angry and do not sin. Not all anger is a sin. We talked about that. Righteous anger is okay. But he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, he's saying, don't let the sun go down. What Paul is not saying is that like every single day you need to lie awake in your room and be like, okay, before the sun goes down, it's 5.30. I need to think about all the reasons. That's not what he's saying. Like, what he's saying is, listen, do not let the sun go down. Deal with your anger quickly. Deal with it in a timely manner. Do not let a big time period gap between when it occurred and when you deal with it. Shrink that gap. Make it as short and as close as possible. Why? Because undealt with anger lingers in your heart and leads to things. Paul says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Can I just say, there are some of you in the room this morning and there have been too many sons that have gone down on your anger. And in your pride, you are unwilling to let it go. You need to let it go. Leviticus 19 says this, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. That phrase, bear a grudge, in the ancient Hebrew, it literally means the idea of keeping something in front or harboring it in your mind. And so what scripture is saying is he's saying, listen, you don't need to keep the offense in your mind all the time. You don't need to harbor it. You don't need to create a fortress out of it, a stronghold, to echo Paul's words. You don't need to give it such prominence in your mind that it begins to control your thoughts and control your actions. Why? Because here's what happens. We have this moment where there is this perceived wrong that happens to us, which leads us to become angry, right? It's the natural response to us. We, something happened. It hurt my pride. It hurt my selfishness. And all of a sudden, now I am angry. That undealt with anger, if we allow many, many sons to continue going down, it begins to lead to what we'll call bitterness. And all of a sudden, you're just bitter at that person. You're frustrated all the time, even when you hear their name and think about them. And then it leads you to isolate yourself from them. You begin to avoid them. You begin to think that it's not worth your time being around them because every, not just that event they did, but now everything about them irritates you and frustrates you and angers you, which ultimately leads to hatred. 
Some of you, you have been holding on to anger for so long that you are on this downward spiral. And listen, nobody ever wants to hate their spouse. Nobody ever intends to hate their kids. But when we carry our anger with us, it leads to bitterness. And then all of a sudden we're isolating from them, spending less time with them. Why? Because they're bad people and they're, we don't like them anymore. And now we hate them. Some of you, stop carrying it around. Stop carrying it around. You're heading down a path that is lonely and difficult and hard. How are we going to do this? Fourth, extend forgiveness. We're going to extend forgiveness. It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. Man, that just sounds brutal, right? But that's where we find ourselves. Now, I want to pause here for a second before we get too far into unforgiveness and just clarify. Maybe you have grown up in church your whole life, or maybe you're kind of visiting for the first time today, but you've been aware of other Christians and other believers in Jesus who have told you that the biblical thing to do is to forgive and forget. Let me just say, that's wrong. That's wrong. When we forgive and forget, we're letting people off the hook. Forgive and forget is, it's a beautiful statement and you could preach it and you could put it on Twitter, you could, whatever you want to do with it, but it's not 100% true because what we see is people mixing two different things, forgiveness and repentance and trying to make them go together, but that's not what we see in scripture. Forgiveness in scripture is a choice. It's something that we choose to do. Even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, it is us acknowledging this person has wronged me, this person has hurt me, but I am not going to hold it against them. I'm going to forgive them. My anger will be released because I know that God, scripture tells me, that God is the judge and he is the ultimate arbitrator of all human conflict. Therefore, I can hold nothing against them, so I will let it go. What it does not mean is I need to immediately go and hug that person and say, man, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah, I forgive you. Let's be friends again. No, no, no. Repentance, restoration of the relationship occurs only when they repent. Remember this. You can forgive someone and that relationship is never restored. Because that's up to them. That's their repentance. That's their actions, their initiatives. But we are called, as those of us who follow Jesus and love Jesus and believe in him, we are called to forgiveness. In fact, there's a story in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus is, they're talking about church discipline. And Peter comes up to him afterwards and says, Lord, how often, how much should we forgive people? He wants to know, like, what's the limit of my forgiveness and the, the Jews would have said two to three times. And so Peter says, I'm gonna, give some, I'm gonna forgive someone seven times. I'm gonna double it, God. I'm so much more holier than the normal Jew. I'm gonna be extra forgiving. I'm gonna do it seven times. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 Peter. That's not enough. And depending on the translation you're looking at, he could say, I want you to forgive someone 77 times, or it could say, I want you to forgive someone 70 times, seven times. The, the, the point here is that Jesus is saying, no, no, your forgiveness of other people is a continual thing that has no end, it knows no bounds. It's continual over and over and over again. And to iterate this point, Jesus tells a story, and I wanna look at this story as we close. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. He says, therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents, we'll come back to that, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Whoa, that escalated quickly, right? 
The dude says, hey, I, knew, I owe you 10,000 talents. A talent was equal to about 20 years worth of work. So this dude owes 200,000 years worth of work. Let's just, let's just say the average wage in America, I don't know what it is exactly, but I just picked a random number. $50,000 a year is the average wage in America. That means this dude owes $10 billion. He doesn't have that money. It's an impossible debt. No one could repay that. And so what does the guy do? He says, you don't have $10 billion? Fine. Sell your wife, sell your kids, sell everything in your house, sell everything you own, and then give me that money. Verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. The dude says, you owe me $10 billion. You don't have it? Fine. Sell your kids, sell your wife, sell everything you have. You owe me this money. I deserve it. It's mine. Give it to me. And the guy falls on his knees and says, I, I don't have it. I am sorry. And the master stands up and says, oh, you're sorry? Okay, forgiven. Good job. Head on out. Go home. Listen, in this story, we are the servants. God is the master. You and I, every single one of us owed a debt that was so big it was impossible. But we asked for forgiveness and God said, yes. How does the story end? Real quick, check this out. But when the servant, that's us, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins or two months worth of work, not a whole lot. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. He's like, yeah, he's frustrated. He's saying, you owe me money. I want my money back. And the whole time he's getting whispered, you should be mad. He hasn't paid you. You deserve what you get. You want something and he's not giving it. You should be mad. You should be angry. You should be frustrated. You should be furious. You should be mad. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. The master's God, we're the servants. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? How? How can we be so mad and so angry and so frustrated and withhold forgiveness from others in light of what God has forgiven us? The Lord is compassionate, Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we are made in his image. Anger is not who we are. We are love, patience, kindness. We are made in his image. Who do you need to forgive? Who's the person that wronged you? And you've been holding on to it. And in light of how much God has forgiven you, your response should be to forgive them. What's the offense? What's the wrong that you need to let go? Ephesians 4.31, let's close with this. Get rid of all bitterness, all rage, all anger, brawling and slander among with, along with every form of malice. Get rid of the lies, get rid of the anger, get rid of it, replace it, replace it with what? Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave 
Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you are such a forgiving, loving, gracious God. God, in light of how much you have forgiven each and every one of us yesterday, today, and even tomorrow, God, our response is to forgive others, to lay down our pride, and to acknowledge that the majority of the time that we are angry and frustrated and hurt is because of our selfishness. As we continue praying this morning, just in a moment of kind of pure transparency and honesty here, if you would say, man, Adam, I'm, a, I'm an angry person. Maybe you're, maybe you're revealing it to everyone around you. Maybe you're concealing it on the inside. But you would say, Adam, I'm an, I'm, I'm an angry person. Remember, we cannot defeat what we do not name and define. If that's you this morning, you would just say, man, I struggle with anger. I struggle with irritations. Just slip up your hand and bold act right where you are. Hands all over the room. Stick them up in Fredericksburg. Online, I think you can click that little button that's hands raised. You can do it there too as an act of confession that says, I struggle with anger. If you have your hands up, I want you to look at me for just a second. You are not defined by your anger. You have been forgiven so that you can forgive. Stop carrying it around. Put your sword away. Here in a moment, we're gonna stand and we're gonna worship together. We've got our prayer team at all of our campuses hanging out. I would love for you to take a moment and pray with them. Remember, scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. This morning, maybe you are holding on to some anger and unforgiveness that you need to confess. Let's spend some time in worship and praying to the Lord. Let's stand.